This didn't work out the way I wanted it to. This is not. This is not good content. <laughs> we're gonna. We're gonna just roll on. <laughs> And welcome to Three Idiots and a Lawyer, Matt Pfeiffer, along with Colin Lerner, Joe Shell, Brett Fortnum, and thanks for joining us. Uh, it, kind of a unique night tonight. Uh, Brett's Buffalo Sabres are playing Colin's New York Rangers while we are recording this on Tuesday night, the 26th. Uh, so if you hear them exclaim things throughout the pro- podcast, uh, that's what they're talking about. Apparently, Colin's about 15 seconds ahead of Brett. <laughs> Uh, which makes things kind of interesting because Colin's like, yeah, that's awesome. And Brett's waiting to see what God awful thing has happened. Colin, just throw out false reactions. Yeah, <laughs> no. Oh no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we want to do a uh, quick score update, uh, it's currently one, nothing Rangers. So looking good so far. Oh, and we have your gargle goalie instead of your sneeze goalie. I didn't realize that. To add further <laughs> to this, Joe and I know almost nothing about hockey. At least, least you know, we know like very basics, but we can't. We couldn't name a ton of players because neither. Of us what are the names of your two goalies? Uh, Alexander Gorgiev. He's from Bulgaria, and then there is the, gar- a, the gargle goalie. Yes, and then there is uh, Igor uh, Shesterkin, who is from uh, Russia. Bless you. Oh no, that's not a sneeze. <laughs> and who are Brett's goalies? Um, bad and batter. Oh, well, that's that's a shame. This is important information. I couldn't name a single person on either of these teams. Anyway, look, it's been quite a little week for Syracuse basketball here. We have watched yet again, to use Colin's phrasing, the jackal and hide that is this Syracuse basketball program rear its head again. We had a Good, solid win on Saturday over 16th-ranked Virginia Tech. First-ranked win for Syracuse in over a year. Fun fact. And it was that quality win, that resume win we were looking for, and it was a 78-60, to pretty lopsided in the second half. Good, solid win that made you feel good. And then Syracuse turned around, obviously facing a very tough opponent, maybe the best team in the – or certainly one of the best teams in the ACC going on the road to Virginia. And it was just not very pretty. A lot of open threes. Virginia pulled away pretty handily in this one for an 81-58 to 58 win. So yet again, we sit here another week in January and a win and a loss. So now – Syracuse is nine and five. They're yet again under 500 in the ACC, but now with a quality win. I don't know how you guys are feeling right now. I look at this and we're in a better spot than we were last week. You know, just having that good quality win. And obviously, look, I mean, you lose to a, a highly ranked team like Virginia. That happens even to really good teams. But seeing the way that this defense could not defend the three. And look, Virginia was hot from beyond the arc, but I just am concerned yet that there are just issues here that are not being dealt with. And by the way, Merrick Dolajai played all 40 minutes of both of these games, which is just not good either. I don't know. How are you guys feeling? I, I'm, I'm, you know, happy you know, Matt, or not. If, if you told me that we were going to split these games – I would have been okay with that. I don't think any of us would have been worried about splitting these two games. I This isn't what I thought when, when we 
we're doing our predictions last week. I had it flipped the other way. But two matchups against ranked teams, and if you told me we were going to beat Tech and lose to Virginia, that's fine. I would have taken that and not been real worried. I think it's more the way it happened. Is It just it t- takes away your momentum from building on your big resume-building win over a ranked opponent. And a lot of the things that were improved that allowed us to beat Tech were non-existent against Virginia, mostly on the defensive end. And I'm sure Brett's probably going to get a little more in-depth in what's wrong with the zone than I'm going to. So I'll just point out that whatever it is, we need to figure out a way to close out on shooters. People need to know what their assignments are. The switches need to be cleaner. Way too many times you see Alan Griffin flying out to close out on a shooter who Buddy's already closed out on. So you got two guys closing out on the same shooter, and that leaves another guy wide open. Stuff like that happens all the time. And then you have Quincy Garrier saying after the game that they kept forgetting who the shooters were. You can't lose. How many times did we yell Hauser is open with expletives? How can they forget that he's the shooter? The man yeah, was 7 yeah. of 13 beyond the arc. It was silly. 21 of his points yeah. from three. No, Joe, I'm with you. I'm fine sitting here and saying that Virginia is a great team. They had open shots. They made them. They made, what, 45%, I think, something like that. Yeah. That's fine. But after the game, you cannot say, we forgot who the shooters were. I mean, that's bad. I mean, yeah. c- come on. It's, that's it's poor. I mean, it was a quick turnaround, but that's not an excuse. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. The last point I wanted to make that I found troubling is even in the win against Tech, we were just as reliant on ISO plays and one-on-one plays, and there was no real flow on offense, which we're going to need to succeed going forward. There's going to need to be better ball movement, more movement off ball, more points off assisted plays. It just so happened against Virginia Tech, we hit all of our shots, and so we didn't really – it didn't stand out. It wasn't as frustrating to watch. But it was the same offense that came out against Virginia. We just stopped hitting the shots, and I find that disappointing. Even in the win, the thing that we need to do on offense to actually get better and actually move towards a tournament bid, we didn't do. We just – hit shots in our ISO one-on-one ball that we always get stuck in. Prior to getting into this, like, I feel like if this game was, like, in the middle of the year, then it would have just kind of been fine. But to just kind of go back to what Joe was saying before, it's it really just, I feel like it kind of killed so much of the, like, good feelings that we had going about this team. And I'm just kind of worried if, like, mentally we're going to be able to kind of pull it back. And also, I feel like different from our other teams in the past, this is less of a Jekyll and Hyde team, actually. I think this is kind of, we're seeing what the team is going to be. I think if we're able to play inside, able to score majority of our points in the paint, we're going to win. I think if we're going to play a team that can knock down 40% of their shots and has the defensive structure to be able to hang with us on our ISO ball, then we're just going to lose. I really kind of think it's, we'll be able to kind of call these games going into it. I was thrilled we beat Virginia Tech and I was happy to see it. I thought there were some good positives of that game. I thought that the, the ball movement was better than what we've seen. Joe, it's tough to disagree about the ISO ball. Um, but, it, I mean, I saw I saw Kaderi driving to the basket, and he wasn't necessarily always finishing, but he was posting guys up. And I love to see that because it, it, it didn't just end up being 
pass, 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 throw up a contested shot that didn't work. The other thing I noticed in that game was Kaderi seemed to want to shoot a little bit more. He took one shot that didn't count because of the, the shot clock, looked beautiful. I was hoping that there might be a little bit more of a confidence boost. Then you have the Virginia game, and nothing looked good in the Virginia game. It just seemed like they weren't trying to have any off-ball movement in the against Virginia. It would be, okay, we'll pass it, and then everyone will stand around and wait for the next pass, and we'll all stand around. And even when you tried to, to dribble penetrate, one, Virginia wasn't really allowing it much, and two, no one did anything. What you want to see happen is when someone is driving, you want someone else cutting somewhere. You need more movement, and it's, it just wasn't happening at all against Virginia. But obviously the, the big thing with Virginia was the open threes, and Virginia hit 45% of their threes, 14 for 31. And just the idea that you could lose your shooter is is so frustrating. But the other thing, there was one point in the game, and this was uh, about mid-second half. The ball was on left side of the court, and you had the guards, again, at the foul line extended, and both guards were on the same half of the floor, uh, the left half. And when you looked over, there was a Virginia shooter just standing there, and it would take one pass to get the ball there. And you saw the back line. The back line had their guys covered. And what you want to see is you want to see someone in that passing lane so you can't make that one quick pass to that shooter. And it, it was happening all night where you just have that guy wide open and you can't leave that open. It gets back to the, the point I was trying to make a, a few episodes ago about where the guards are positioning. Because in one sense, yes, you want to prevent them from going high post, but you have to get in the passing lane so Virginia can't just throw the ball around the horn and find the open shooter. Now, that is both the guard's responsibility to get in the passing lane, but it's also the help side wing's responsibility to flash a little bit so that shooter doesn't have nothing but space. And there was just no rotation to that. And they weren't extending the zone at all. I, I've always said that the best 2-3 zone kind of looks like a 3-2 because you have the defenders facing up on the guy with the ball. And just like I mentioned last week, and I mentioned again about the Bryant game, there was a point where you have Buddy and Gerard. They're at the top of the zone. They're pinching at the top of the zone, which is why these shooters are so open. And then the guy still drove right between them. So it just makes me think that these guys are not understanding the concept of the zone because the concept of the zone is not to just let guys drive between you. You have to guard the ball and you have to anticipate the passes going around and get in the passing lanes. The, the thing about a zone versus a man-to-man, man-to-man, you're not as concerned about getting in the passing lanes and that's what you're supposed to be doing with zone and the guards just aren't doing it and it puts such an onus on the wings to cover so much space that's completely impossible the, the wings are not absolved of all guilt they're they're absolutely responsible as well here but it just it doesn't look like these guys are learning and the fact that Kadari is not getting more minutes when he seems to be the only competent defender at the top of the zone it just it it, it frustrates me well so that was the other thing that i wanted to point out is you have Jim Beheim, who always kind of falls back on this, well, I'm going to play the hot hand, I'm going to play the guys who are playing well, while we were winning the game, you know, of course I'm going to play Merrick 40 minutes, at, you know, because we're winning, 
But when you're down 15, 20 points, why is Dolezal still playing 40 minutes a game? Like, why are you not rotating guys in, at least trying to find something different? Like, it's clearly not working. You know, I can at least eat it when I'm going to, when he's going to sit there and say, well, you know, we're one by 20. So I, you know, I kept the lineup going fine. But if we're down by so many, what what is the harm in at least trying to rotate guys in? Yeah, I'm with you. Honestly, it's because we all know Beheim goes a lot based on practice and not just cumulatively practice of late. So my guess is that after his good performance, who was it, against Miami, that Jesse Edwards had a shitty week of practice yeah. and Beheim didn't want to play him. He he always says, like, I play who's doing well in practice. I always play who's doing well in practice. So I'm guessing the guys who we didn't see weren't doing well in practice. We saw Braswell a little bit at the end. He's one of our best defenders. So that's the only move he really made. I think Woody Newton might be a little banged up still. He's had some, like, hush-hush injury stuff going on. Um, but I guess Edwards probably looked bad in practice and didn't really – earn his playing time this week. I mean, that's all well and good, but practice doesn't get you to the NCAA tournament. Yeah, and also, I mean, he's never looked good before. Then all of a sudden, he had a very worthwhile performance. So some guys just end up playing better in live action, and we never find that out unless we try it. And you're right. Once you're down by that much, you got to try something. It's like I said last week. Like It, it is so unlike Beheim to open up his rotation all. That's why I never thought that Jesse Edwards was going to get real minutes. Like he does this every single year. Yeah, but now we're down to six and that's a, he traditionally when the team was good, there would at least be a seventh guy who played valuable minutes. Yeah. yeah I agree. Usually had a guard off the bench and a big guy off the bench. It seems to be kind of be Braswell in Richmond. And I don't think he's going to really extend any farther than that. I, oh, I mean, no. I think that occasionally Edwards will sniff minutes if, Dolzhai is in foul trouble. And if Dolzhai is not in foul trouble, then he's going to play 40 minutes. And that's tough. And that's something that kind of goes back to something we talked about earlier this year is seeing these guys run down. Remember when we talked after the Rutgers game and some of the Especially other when you have to press. Yeah. I mean, this is. And especially when you have a guy like Dolzhai who is not in the position he should be in. You know, he should not have to play the five. If you had. A center, if Sidibe's not hurt, or you had another backup center who they felt was ready to play, Dolezal's at the four. I really think if Dolezal played on a different team in his proper spot for 40 years, he would be getting NBA looks. I know he probably wouldn't be a first rounder, but I really think that he his draft stock has taken a hit playing on cues and his off position for over for pretty much his entire career, having to play more minutes than he should, having to be the guy the offense runs through when he shouldn't have to be that. I really think that, personally, this has probably hurt his draft stock. He's still going to get a chance. Like, he's obviously not going to get drafted, but he's going to be in camp with someone. I don't know if he'll stick, but he'll get a look, just because he's good at so many things. Let's ask this. When you look at something like that, how does that hurt your recruiting? If you're a Dolajai-like player, do you look at Syracuse and say, that's not where I want to go because there is a decent chance I'm going to be playing out of position. I'm not improving my chances of playing at the next level. I think 85% of kids transfer out if they're in Dolajai's position. I think Dolajai is a special kid who is connected to the school. He came over from a different country. I think he feels comfortable here. I don't think he would transfer out. I think if you have any of the you know top 100 guys coming in today who are 
more comfortable, more looking to, you know, more worried about their draft stock than the, you know, how the school finishes, I think that they would bounce quickly. See, I think that uh, the biggest obstacle between Dolajai and the NBA is hold all, on. All Colin that... just made a made a reaction. What's happening? Yeah, and there's 20 seconds game. left in the damn period. Which oh no, here it comes. Here's so, the breakaway. <laughs> not only I love the delay. I love the delay. So, Wait, sorry, so what that, happened? So not not only uh, did the Rangers score, but our uh, rookie who was played in his fourth NHL game got the goal. So it's his first NHL goal in his fourth game. Does this rookie have a name? Yes, he is Keandre Miller. And actually, if you want to, you know, go into um, a more interesting thing, Keandre Miller is the third African-American player to play for the Rangers, which is the, I believe, most of any team in the, like, 2000s, I believe. Look at that. Yeah. It, it amazes me how bad this team is. It really does. Like, Colin, just looking at what happened, how, like, is there any excuse for that goal? I'm going to say uh, either bad or badder. Um, yeah. Didn't play very well. Um, but anyway, yeah. uh, sorry. I'm um, trying yeah. to get back to what we're going to um, do. So I, I think Dolajai's biggest obstacle with actually getting to the NBA is his build. He's just not that big. And guys in the NBA are big. You know, there are exceptions. You have Jeremy Grant, who's a freak athlete, who is having a great NBA uh, season. And it's kind of building on an unexpectedly good NBA career, but he's a freak athlete. I think these scouts understand if guys are playing out of position and they can tell. So I don't think that guys in Dolajai's position would automatically transfer out because he's getting minutes and that's what kids want the most. They want to be out there playing and he's out there playing. And I think he's going to be a great player in a probably European league or something, but I don't necessarily think it'll be the NBA. No. Yeah. But he'll get, like I said, I think he'll get a look. He'll he'll get a camp with someone. If there's a summer league, he'll get a summer league. But yeah, sure. They, yeah. He probably, yeah, like that's, and that's the only reason I, th- I think if he were able to bulk up to some degree that he could be a NBA player because he's good at so many things. He would probably need to develop a three-point shot. And I'm honestly surprised he hasn't done that. In college, a lot of that might have to do with playing wow. the five, but he, he hasn't. He hasn't been in a position where yeah, he is his freshman year he knocked down a couple, shots. and then his yeah. sophomore year, I mean, it's kind of a chest heave shot, but he was hitting them at a decent clip. You know, it wasn't taking a lot, but he was hitting them at a good rate. And then that is last... noticeably the way I shoot a basketball. <laughs> the last two years, it's just disappeared. What came to mind during this discussion for me was that the back end of our roster is relatively untalented and that's not what a Syracuse roster usually looks like and I'm tired of falling back on this and I'm tired of this being the excuse in my brain but I just still feel like we're trying to build the talent back up from the sanctions I think the sanctions hit recruiting so hard and the reason that the recruiting while not as bad as some people want to make it sound has been taking an uncharacteristic dip, still has to do with that, and we're still building back up from that. I don't know if you guys saw, Benny Williams is pretty much a five-star recruit now, top 15 player. Mm -hmm. By the time he makes it on campus, he's probably going to be about as highly touted a recruit as Dior was going to be. Well, that's exciting. There's a lot to be excited about then for that. I mean, but do you still need more around him. And I know there are other guys. We need five. We haven't recruited a good five in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, Joe, when did the sanctions lift? Because it's been a couple years now, hasn't it? It's been a couple of years, but a few years, but yeah. Our rotation players for them, like we've had good talent on the team. You're, we're still getting players like Gary A, but you don't you don't have the the depth to go to, and I think that's a big part of it too. Is that the players just aren't ACC caliber players? Like, sure, you always get your Mookie Jones or your guy who like doesn't pan out, but this just feels different. I feel like we get guys who, from the moment they join the team, it's like ah, he's never going to play. Like John Bull, a Jack, he's he's never going to play. He's too small, and he's supposed to be a center. He's never going to play. Well, it's funny. Somebody asked Beheim on his radio show a question that I have, which sounds like a stupid question, but it's really not, which is like, well, why does every guy we get it this build? Why can't we – why aren't we you know, getting bigger guys, bigger, you know, more talented five? And Beheim said straight up, he's like, they're just not available. He's like, we're trying yeah. to get them. There are just very few he's of them. He straight they're up said recruiting guys. centers is hard. Yeah. It's just simply tough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I understand it, but if we're going to consider ourselves, if not a blue blood program, then a close second to that, at least, yeah. then we can't be falling back on, well, it's the sanctions. You know, we have to, at some point, we got to put a better product on the court. For sure. Right. Which gets into a whole slew of questions that, you know, Syracuse basketball Twitter has been. <laughs> a flurry with the past two or three weeks, especially about two weeks ago. And then there was the, the Jim Bayheim questions, which we've talked about in the past and, you know, whether it's time for Jim to hang it up or not, not that it really matters. Jim's going to stay till buddies till, till buddy graduates. But if we could get hop tomorrow, I would pack Jim's bags for him. That's like, well, the only, I too. that's the I, only guy that I'm sitting here. Like, cause I know it's going to happen. It's going to go to someone else on staff. I would be okay I, if I were really Adrian Autry. But you can't. I, Jim's there until he... No, I know, but I'm saying once yeah. once he leaves, it's probably going to go to Adrian Autry, and I'm okay with that. He seems to be our best recruiter. We but, say all of this, of course, and of course Jim Beheim's forgotten more about basketball than any of us will ever know. Yeah, but I'm worried he's starting to show it. <laughs> yeah, I was about to mention that. I kind of want to look at the, the rest of the season for a minute. I mean, we're sitting here, what, 10th? I, I th- sorry, I think we're tied for ninth in the ACC, three and four in con- conference, nine and five overall. What does it take to make the tournament from here on out? How many games do we have left? Ten. We have ten games left, and we're standing at where in conference? Ninth. Tied for ninth. We're tied for ninth. We have ten games left. I mean, you got to win six of them, right? At least. You yeah. can't split the re- from here on out and expect to make the tournament. You just can't. You got two games against NC State. You got to at least take one of those. You've I got think you got to win both. NC State's not good. I, I think if we lose to NC State, that's going to be a bad loss. Yeah, I mean, Clemson, you want to beat Clemson. Boston College, you're going to have to beat again. Frankly, at this point, I think you got to beat Duke. Because well, here's Duke, the thing. You actually have to beat Duke. We are 43 in the Ken Palm rankings right now. And out of the rest of our 10 games, Four of them are against teams that are ranked higher, better than us. That's Louisville at 37 twice, Duke at 34, and UNC at 36. But so, by the way, the, by the time we get to Duke, which is a month away yet, there's no saying Duke's that high. Yeah. Virginia Tech has even fallen in the Kemp. I think they're like 55 or something now. But Georgia um, Tech is getting better. Tech is going to get worse as well after the uh, news that broke last night. Did you hear that? Oh, the guy got kicked off the team, right? The uh, starting point guard for Tech, DUI with a concealed weapon. 
um, and is uh, suspended indefinitely. Yeah, um, I can't uh, tell you uh, his name right now, but whoever the starting point guard is. Also, I'm going to say I think we have to win seven out of the ten to have a legitimate shot. And I, I don't think it's impossible. We just need to, for the most part, see the better version of what we've been seeing of late. Yeah. We got to make threes. I mean, yeah, this team is I was so going to ask you guys. Buddy is shooting under 30% right now, guys. That's what I mean. Yeah. Like, I know Buddy was one I... of seven on Monday we're, night. We're not a good three-point shooting team this year. But do you, I wanted to know if you guys think that's true. Because we have three guys who have been proven to be proficient three-point shooters. Not necessarily the best percentage, but we have three guys that have been proven to be adequate three-point shooters in major college basketball. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what the them. problem is? You are what your record says you are. Yeah, I agree. But do you guys have any hope for them getting hot again? Do you think this is just what they are? Like, It just doesn't make sense to me. We've seen Buddy have full seasons of being a decent three-point shooter. Joe Girard had his inconsistencies and his struggles, but overall was a solid three-point shooter last year. Alan Griffin shot 40% from three in his last season. They can get hot, but here's the problem. We are not enough of a threat in the paint for teams to not be pushing their defenders out to at least the edge of the long two range and then into the three range. So you're not getting a lot of clean shots. And frankly, even when we're getting clean shots, they're going off the rim. I mean, look. That's the thing. They were missing open looks, wide open looks. They're rushing stuff, too. I mean, here's the thing, right? If we're not great inside and we're not great outside, at what point do you just kind of have to say we're just kind of eh? We're kind we of whatever Quincy Garrier can right. bring us to. We're kind of like a it's middle of the road. I guess what I mean to ask is would you rather see them just pack it up and say, you know what, the threes aren't falling this year. We're going to completely change our game plan and only try to work inside. Or do you think we need to keep letting Buddy and Joe and Alan find their stroke a little bit? I mean, I think that those guys have been shooting too much even when they weren't ice cold because it's poor shot selection. They're forcing... Not against Virginia. Not against Virginia. They had good shots. Every time I see... In the first half, I did not see very many bad shots. There were not very many bad shots against Virginia. In the second half, there were, but everything fell apart in the second half. Right. But my, my point being is that Throughout the course of the season, it's been very poor shot selection. And even against Virginia, you have Joe Girard dribbling the ball up and saying, I'm going to shoot it from half court. And every time he does that, I want to see him sit down. I just, he need like, he needs to stop doing that. Buddy is a bit more selective, but even he's still slinging him a, a bit. And Griffin has spurts where he, he does that, but not as often. Nick Van Exel would, would tell you, that the next shot, no matter what happened with the last 20, that the next shot is always going in. And our shooters need to have that mindset. But as I said at the beginning of the season, we cannot rely on the three-point shot. You must have an offense that includes more mm-hmm. depth than that. I, I mean, in this case, yeah, I think the team needs to change their identity because our identity is not good right now. I agree with most of what you're saying, but I don't... They need to work the ball inside more. They need to have more ball movement, and they can't just be shooting threes 40 times a game and expect that to carry them. No, I agree with you. There's definitely a middle ground, but I don't think we're going to win very many more games if the three-point shooting doesn't pick up, because it's it's been bad, and 
I guess it's frustrating to me to watch it be this bad with this many good shooters in the starting lineup who yeah. these good shooters have been very bad shooters this year. And I just, it doesn't make sense. I can't see anything positive coming from the season with that maintaining. And I almost wonder how much of it is COVID now that we know that both buddy and Joe had it. Yeah. If it's thrown off, you know, first of all, they probably weren't practicing at all. We know that players were allowed to work out during that time, but if they were sick, they probably weren't. And whatever the lasting effects may be, throwing off their equilibrium a little bit, I almost wonder if that's the problem because yeah. you know, there's not a, a good explanation for why it's been such a struggle. Did Gerard have it over the summer or am I losing my mind? Both of them had it during the second pause after the Buffalo game, which wasn't that long ago. So maybe maybe that's it. And once they're, you know, maybe it's going to take some time. Joe, I, I did want to agree with you when you said seven games. I Going into the Virginia Tech game, I thought we had to go eight and four. And I'm going to stick with that. And having gone one and one, I think we need to go seven and three the rest of the way out. But I think that we probably need to be two of those good teams, which gives you a little space to, to lose another game somewhere. But the ACC is having a down year. We're not going to get in with a losing conference record this year. There's just there's not enough good teams in the ACC to warrant it. And I'm I'm worried that we're not going to get there. I mean, seven and three is a is a lot, and I don't know that I've seen this team go on a streak that warrants me believing they can go seven and three. Yeah, I mean, I think seven and three is a tough ask, but just to kind of close down um, the point on our shooters, I know that I'm kind of grasping, but to Joe's point, I'm kind of at a loss for why these guys who we've seen who have had good seasons are all of a sudden not having good seasons. And I'm sure them being sick has had uh, something to do with it, but. I feel like also our shooters are incredibly streaky. I think that we we know that. And they feed off the kind of good flows going into a game. And then you're playing basketball in arenas with nobody there. These guys are, I mean, Joe Girard scored 50 points a game in high school. He hasn't played in an arena with nobody in it since he was in middle school, since he was 12 years old. I, I do think there may be something to just the weirdness of being a jump shooter in completely empty arenas, you're not able to hear anything when the ball falls, you're not able to get any of that kind of, you know, at anything going on. I know that it's grasping, but I'm hoping that it's something to do with that and not just like depth perception. I mean, I don't, I don't know that it's that because I mean, these guys practice, you know, without that and it's a shooting stroke, you know, you do it a hundred times over and over and over again. It's the same thing. I, I, I'm inclined to think it does have something to do with getting sick. Um, yeah, you know, that, that just, it, it screws you up so much. But like, I had a day where I stepped into a gym and I swear to you that I must have hit 30 in a row. Threes. I've never done that before in my life. I'll never do it again. But there was not, I, mean, I think there was one other kid in the, the whole entire gym who I don't even know the name of to witness. Like, I don't think it's so that we can't double check this story. Yeah, of course. of course. Of course you can. I mean, again, it'll never happen again. And I think it's I, I think it's possible to do it empty. You know, these guys scrimmage empty almost every practice. I don't think that's it. I think it's just an odd year. I mean, catching COVID, having having breaks in the season, not having I mean, not having your family and friends in the stand, maybe. But that's more of a, you know, I, I think it might have more to do with that than necessarily just it being empty. If We're that always makes sense. a team where it's, it takes us time to figure it out early on in the year. And I think two pauses during that critical time has just perpetually put us in that, 
early season mode where we're searching for our identity, trying to get hot, figure out a flow. And that's not an excuse because every team has to deal with the same stuff. But I think with the way our program has been working, it's hitting us especially hard. Can I point out what we are good at, which I never thought I'd say is we're good at free throws. Right? Yeah, right. We're really yeah. good at free throws. We And that's with Gerard hardly ever getting to the line, too. 18 that, that, that to me means that we just need to throw the season out. It doesn't 18 count. of 22 on Saturday, 81%. And then we were 90% on Monday night. Even Sean McDonough said this might be the best free throw season for Syracuse basketball. Uh, it's incredible. They never made these kinds of numbers. If they'd made some of these kind of numbers before, they'd have gotten past the freaking Sweet 16 some mm-hmm. of those years. What was the last time you saw a half of college basketball finish with, what was it, three fouls in the first three half? Fouls, of three fouls, and it was fouls. 37 three, minutes. Three and, fouls. And Come if on. ever before, it was probably also against Virginia. But, yeah, yeah. that was it just flew by. What a what a – yeah, that game was it over. Was, it no was a time. bizarre game. Well, let's look at the next two games are – We've got Sunday, a 6 p.m. Sunday tip uh, on the ACC network. Great. Versus NC State, 6 and 5 overall, 2 and 4 in the ACC. And then next Wednesday, um, Syracuse hosts Louisville, who's current at 7 p.m., also the ACC network. Sorry for those of you who are using most cable uh, networks, including myself. 10 and 3. Five and two in conference. I look at this. I think we beat NC State. We lose to Louisville. And it's going to look exactly like what we saw. We're going to beat NC State by like 18 or 20. And then Louisville is going to blow us out by 20 or 25. I agree. I'm, I'm not going to waste a bunch of time. I just I agree with everything Matt said. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, the only thing that I will add is um, if we're going off the, uh, we have to go seven and three. If we drop one of these two games, we're um, in a deep caca. Mm-hmm. And Colin, that's why I think that we're going to win them both. Not because I believe this team is good, but because Syracuse right, because has a way. Keep on pulling us back in. Yep, yep, yep. yep every, every time you're ready to write them off, they yeah. just, they do something that makes you not entirely give up. And it makes it even more frustrating because they never actually turn out to be good. Mm -hmm. And now that Brett has suggested that Syracuse will win both, we will now probably lose both. I had a final, uh, a final thought that I wanted to run past you guys. And that's whether or not you think there's any way we can improve our rebounding. I know we always fall back on the fact that we play a zone as a reason why we can't defensively rebound. Um, we've shown flashes. There have been games where even our, you know, our offensive rebounding has been solid at times. But things that I've noticed, first of all, the lack of having a true center really hurts us there. Even even just Sidibe, when he wasn't very good, was still good for five, six rebounds a game. A lot of ball washing. When a shot goes up, no one's just no one's trying to put themselves in a position to do anything positive. They're just watching the ball. They're watching it go up or they're watching the pass whiz past their head. And then when the shot does go up, even if you're in a zone, you can still find the nearest guy and put a body on him. And I know normally we're bad at that, but I feel like it's even more non-existent than usual this year. And, and Joe, the end of that there is what I really want to emphasize, because this narrative that you can't defensively rebound in a zone, I mean, sure, you don't have your guys standing right there. It means it takes effort. To box them out. 
Yeah. It, it, it means that you just have to turn your head a little bit more. It doesn't mean it's impossible. It's not an excuse for how bad these teams are at rebounding year after year after year, and especially this team game after game after game. All you have to do is find a body and man up. And I think it was it was Alan Griffin, and I should have mentioned this last week because it was when we completely fell apart. It, it was it was the pit game, and Champagne came from the corner, just ran yeah. baseline with a put back dunk, and I, they showed the replay. And Griffin was just standing there looking at the ball the entire time, and Champagne ran right past him. Like no one is looking to. Get on a guy and box him out. And I'm sorry, this, this, oh, you can't do it in the two, three zone stuff. It's garbage. It, it's back to fundamentals. If you know how to box a guy out, you can box a guy out in a zone. You can box a guy out man to man. All you have to do is just find a body. Come on. I think it goes back to what Joe said. I don't know, two episodes ago, maybe that Griffin's trying to shoot himself into the NBA. I think that was Brett or Kevin, but yeah. Oh, it's fine, Joe. I'll also give you credit for it. Thanks. Um, it's yeah, a smart sure. point. I'm glad yeah. I said it before. Yeah, yeah great. Um, but like, I again, I I don't want to put it all onto you know one person, but I feel like Gurry is doing his job. I really do. And then it falls onto the other wing, and that's Griffin. I feel like Griffin's just leaking out to try and get down to the three point line to take the open shot, and it's just it's you're never going to work that way. And unless Griffin stays in or we get a serviceable center and we're able to move Dolezal back to that spot. I think that's unfortunately kind of what we're going to, what we're going to be seeing. Well, it's certainly going to be an interesting week here. Uh, the, the, the NC state game, I think like you guys said, is pretty key. Uh, you want to have a good game and then we'll see what happens with the Louisville one after they're de- definitely going to need some more quality wins. Syracuse women, unfortunately came up short twice, although they really amazing really, comeback. Oh, man, it was really great. hung yeah. in with top rank Louisville. And then the overtime loss to Clemson. Uh, they did get the freshman player of the week in Camilla Cardozo. Did, did anyone follow that Clemson game? I know the Louisville game, it was tough. We, you know, we hung with them for half of it and just couldn't, couldn't keep up with I their thought we were pull that game out. But, the, the yeah, did you see what happened with the Clemson game? I did not get to it see went, that. One. It went to overtime. We were down twenty-five at the half. Yeah, yeah. Well, that usually doesn't help if you spot the other team twenty-five points. But we dominated, clawed our way back, and I think they just ran out of gas at the end. But hopefully, they can bounce back because they're good. We have a good team. They've had the freshman of the week for two weeks in a row, which I think is really positive for a young and really super talented team. Uh, you know what? You have ups and downs. They had two losses. They've got three games coming up here in the next couple days. They got Pitt on Thursday night. Then Notre Dame, obviously one of the better uh, premier women's basketball programs out there. And then they go to Georgia Tech. So, hey, if you can pull two of three out of there, that would be really a, a solid bounce-back week. This is a team that, frankly, they're going to go to the tournament. There's not really much question. It's just, you know, got to gotta you know not get yourself into a hole like they did uh, against Clemson. But football schedule is going to be released Thursday. Uh, so we know... Who's on this? Well, we think we know who's on the schedule. Before COVID, we knew that the 2021 crossover game was going to be Virginia Tech in Blacksburg. But there, according to Nate Mink, there's some questions about whether or not we're going to have two divisions or the ACC is going to move into the one football division direction. 
kind of like what this past year was. So stay tuned. There could be a surprise here in two days or by the time you're listening this in a day that would tell us a completely shifting way of the way that they're going to do football. On a positive note, it would mean that our if they do shift into one division, it would mean that our schedule would look more drastically different year after year, and we wouldn't be waiting years on end to play some of these teams from the other side. Which I hate I, how they do it now. I, yeah, oh, I, I think it's terrible. You could go think four it's years. In, it's inherently unfair play. that we have to play Clemson every year and other teams don't. Well, it's also, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I think we would do much better in the Coastal Division. I also think it's just crazy to imagine you could be, frankly, you could be at one of these schools for five years and never play one of the other We could have played in a conference title game two years ago if we were in the other division. Yeah. Oh, we, we definitely would have. I, I, I have, yeah, I think we definitely would have. But uh, it, it's going to be interesting. We'll talk about what the schedule looks like next week. Uh, another thing we're going to talk about next week is lacrosse because lacrosse season is almost upon us. We're looking for national title number 12 or number 11 if you're the NCAA. But uh, look, some just some quick positives here. Uh, the men's lacrosse team uh, is number three in the preseason poll from inside lacrosse, number three in the country, which is great. Uh, it's going to be tough. ACC is essentially the SEC of lacrosse. When it comes, if like if, if SEC is the best conference in football, ACC, all five teams in the ACC are in the top eight. So <laughs> that's all you need to know on that. It's going to be a six-game season starting February 5th, 7th, that weekend. It's going to be two home-and-homes. Those are going to be Virginia and Notre Dame and then a home game against North Carolina, and a road game against Duke. That's it. That's going to be all that the season is. Uh, Those no are six AC- tough games, man. Y- yes, oh, it is. Oh, my goodness. No ACC lacrosse tournament. The regular season champ is the official league champ that we get that automatic bid to the tournament, to the NCAA tournament. Yeah, it is. A, that's the conference schedule. Now, I don't know if they're going to add out a conference to this. You would almost hope because, like Colin said, if if that's it, whew, ooh, man, that, that is brutal. <laughs> They'll probably add like a Hobart or a Colgate or a Cornell. Someone regional, like yeah, someone close by. Like, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Travel. But yeah. Cornell. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you guys don't think they'll add – you don't think Maryland will play us? I mean, yeah, but I mean, we might, but Maryland's second in the country in the preseason. He was sure. Maryland, Maryland doesn't ever want to play us. Oh, I, I, I was making a joke. Maryland doesn't ever want to play. Maryland us. also plays an insufferable brand of lacrosse that's very not fun to watch. I don't know what they do in the shot clock era now, but before the shot clock, they would just sit on the ball yeah, and have well, the longest possessions, and it was not fun to watch. I don't know what they do now. They probably just run out the shot clock every single possession. It can't be worse than I had to. Co- I covered women's lacrosse when I was at Syracuse for Citrus TV, and Syracuse's women's lacrosse team is really good. Some really, and when I was there, you know, really athletic athletes. Uh, but what would happen is they would run into Northwestern, and as you know, in women's lacrosse, there's no helmets. You can't. It's not as physical as the men's game. A lot of things that are fair game in the men's game to get the ball away are not fair game in the women's game. And you don't have to move around as much. So they would always run into Northwestern, either in the regular season or the national title game, and Northwestern would just pass the ball around, like around the corners. They wouldn't even play. They'd get like a two or three goal lead and then just not play anymore. 
and they wouldn't let the other team get through. It was horrible. It was horrible to watch. Well, what really means lacrosse has a shot clock now, and it's made it's been very good for the game, in my opinion. It's made the game so much better. It really was. Has. It invented in Syracuse, though. It was not invented in Syracuse. It's the same shot clock for basketball, so yes. Oof. There you go. Wow. There you go. Uh, the women's lacrosse is going to play ten games in conference, starting the twelfth. Four single opponents, three two-game series. They are going to have an ACC tournament, though, an eight-team ACC tournament that'll be hosted by North Carolina from April twenty-eighth to May second. So, yeah, I don't. I think the reason why you might have one and not the other is just because there are only six teams. I, or you know, are only five teams in the ACC for men's lacrosse. I'm not really sure, but anyway. So those are kind of the the notes on the lacrosse front. We'll get more in the lacrosse next week and preview what, you know, could be a very, very good season for Syracuse. If things play out real well, they've got a great team. They got a lot of talented athletes and and they certainly are going to be a team that's going to be a contender to win the whole thing. And then finally, we have to talk about the end of Kimmel Food Court. If you are not a Syracuse oh. alum, Kimmel is uh, is. If you're not a Syracuse alum, what do you do and listen to this? Well, we have at least one who does listen to this, and maybe they're a fan. Yeah, come on. Uh, Fan of us, a fan of Syracuse. Yeah, exactly. So look, Kimmel Food Court was kind of like the go-to place for late night eats if you were on campus, and it's closing, which is really really sad. And uh, it closed on the inside years ago. It yeah, good like probably right. eight years ago. Well, they got rid of KFC and Burger King and all the actual and Taco Bell. There's a Taco Bell in there. There's a Hagen Dazs in there, man. Yeah, they got rid of it and switched it all to university-run like knockoffs. Like they had a mm. fake Chipotle called Quesos, and it just wasn't good. No, of course not. But you so, could use SuperCard. That's the only use, thing that really You happened. could use Supercard when it was Taco Bell and Burger King. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. No, I'm like I'm oh. I'm, I'm saying the only thing that mattered about Kimmel is yeah. that you could use Supercard. Yeah. Like the if you had parents food, that loved you, you yeah. had clown money to spend on Crunchwrap Supremes at two AM. It was yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was open until four, which was what mattered. So now there's gonna be a a larger, more detailed like food court in shine. Um, they're as long as Glenda's there making the chicken snack wraps, that's all I care they about. Got, okay, so so here's the places that are going to be there. Dunkin' Donuts, all right. Panda Express, that's solid. No, gross. Uh, Core Life Eatery, if you're, uh, you know, into they're, the They're actually food. pretty good. Tomato Wheel, which is knockoff Syracuse pizza. Oh, uh, boy. Oh, man. That, that, that's that's uh, not what I thought it was. I thought it was going to be some kind of salad place or a sandwich shop. Because even Sabaro would be too on brand. Ugh, and Sabaro is terrible. Uh, oh, Chocolate Pizza Company, which is an alum, isn't it? That's the candy. I don't know. I'm intrigued what that is, though. Chocolate I, I don't remember. It. There's a story. No, I remember seeing a story about this. There's a guy. I believe he's a Syracuse alum. He's from the area. And uh, he created like this candy pizza company. He makes like candy pizzas. It's like huh. chocolate instead of cheese, and like, and, and he makes other things too. So anyway, they're gonna have one in there: a biscotti cafe and a halal shack, which apparently is at a bunch of other campuses. So I don't know. The halal shack seems solid. What the heck is biscotti cafe? It's probably a coffee shop. 
Oh no, but because Dunkin's there too. You have a donut there. Probably pastries yeah, and stuff. I don't know. Well, there, there's probably Dunkin' for normal people, and then the biscotti one for people who put their pinky up. Well, the Shine Student Center is only going to be open till 11 p.m., so you can't even go what? get drunk. This is according to Citrus TV's Rick. Oh Street. gosh, what's the point? What's even yeah. the point? I mean, no, I was only good Jimmy John's and have them deliver it to me. How inconvenient. Oh, no, but there's there's something about being able to use uh, Super Yeah, when you're a freshman or a sophomore and you stumble into Kimmel and you fall in the mud and Chris Joseph laughs at you. Good times. It's just something, yeah. yeah. I got a little personal. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Before we go, I know some people on this show wanted to talk about uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame voting uh, happened today on Tuesday. For So nobody is going into the hall. Kurt Schilling didn't get in. Um, and apparently, you know, there's, uh, there's, you know, politically, there's a lot of stuff around. Writers reached out to the Hall of Fame trying to retract their votes for Schilling after January 6th. Right. Because, so, and what did he say after January 6th? Just so we have like context on that. I don't have it in front of me. It was terrible okay. though. He was very in favor of what happened. That is it was very favorable, like violence. Yeah, okay. violence and what happens. Here's here's where I stand on this. I don't think the Hall of Fame voters should be getting in the business of trying to decide who did steroids, who didn't. At first, early on, I was like, oh, I get it. Yeah, no Barry Bonds, no Mark McGuire, no Roger Clemens. I was okay with it. As time's gone on, I've kind of flipped. I don't like that they're trying to decide who's worthy, who's not based on who they think did steroids and who they don't think did steroids, when really we don't know. The fact is, Barry Bonds, whether he did it on his own accord or not, was arguably the best hitter that's ever played baseball. So I said arguably. He's in the conversation. I didn't say he's my choice, uh, with, but arguably. With, with, with respect to Hank Aaron. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But steroid Barry Bonds is in the conversation for being just as good, if not better. For, for the record, I have always been a person that said if, if everybody was juicing to the levels that is becoming more widely known and accepted in Barry Bonds era. Not all those people hit all those home runs or had, you know, you had people who were juicing who clearly weren't as good and did not do as well as Bonds. And Barry was. Bonds had a long and, and, stretch of his career before yeah, steroids where he was still one of the I've, best players. My view is Bonds Barry, should be. Barry Bonds was a Hall of Fame player before he started juicing. Yes. But yeah. I think it's, I think, in the long run, it's going to end up being a moot conversation because what's they going to happen is later on. these guys are going to end up getting in on a review committee and there'll be like a way to acknowledge that this is the steroid era and you have Roger Clemens and Mark McGuire and I don't know, maybe even Sosa. Sosa? Yeah. Uh, maybe. Sosa uh, was good enough to... Uh, any favors yeah. either. Without he wasn't... He wasn't particularly great at anything else. He just hit a lot of home runs, and he didn't start doing it until the peak of the steroid era. Yeah. Let me ask Joe, because we talked about this a little bit before, and Joe's view of the Hall of Fame is it's kind of gone to, like, you, you seem to indicate you think it's gotten a little mediocre recently, and, like, who's getting in? Is yeah, that- I, I don't know. I just think, obviously, there's some guys who squeak in there where you're like, oh, there's no way they belong. But now we're hitting this point where anyone who was – a great player is getting stronger and stronger consideration. And I, I don't know. I just think in my mind, it should be more exclusive than it is. And 
I feel like we're just kind of diluting what, what the whole thing represents. But there's there's guys who are deserving that don't get in. And I'm not talking about the guys who, like, you know, Phil Rizzuto is probably not really deserving of being in the Baseball Hall of Fame as a player, but he was a broadcaster and a poll personality, and his buddies kind of got him in. He wasn't voted in by the writers. I just think we're getting to the point where there's more and more guys every year who are borderline, but they stay in the ballot for a really long time. And there's more guys who are just really good for a long time. But to me, it's more about the guys who were transcendent and were the best player of their era for, for more than just a year or two. And a lot of these guys now were never the best player in their era. But we're also trying to decide who's a good person, who's not a good person. And I don't think that's ne- necessarily doable. There's already dozens and dozens of bad people in the Baseball Hall of Fame. But with that being yeah. said, and I know I've already used my swear, but Kurt Schilling can go fuck himself. He doesn't belong in the Baseball Hall of Fame because of what <laughs> he's done. Joe's trying to move that rating up on the show. Two things. First point, Joe, um, to uh, what you were saying. I believe the second largest mover after Scott Rowland on this list was uh, Andrew Jones. Now, Andrew Jones was a great player, but Andrew Didn't Jones is, is not a Hall of Fame player. I don't even think he played past his 31st, 32nd. He birthday. might be he, – he's in the conversation for the best defensive center fielder of all time, and he was a amazing offensive player for five or six years. Right. He just didn't, he didn't stay healthy and do it long enough. Right, but there's there's no way that a guy like uh, I don't know Willie Mays should be in the same Hall of Fame as a Andrew Jones type player. And then just to kind of close off your loop, uh, Kurt Schilling, he actually just as I actually just looked it up, he just sent a letter to the Hall of Fame asking to be taken off of their list for the for, for take the him off the ballot. ballot. Good, yeah. I don't care. I don't, I'm tired <laughs> of this conversation. So I, I yeah. mean, the Hall of Fame being the Hall of Very Good has happened. For a long time um it it's definitely gotten worse recently you know harold baines jack morris i mean jack morris got in for his game seven performance against john smoltz and, and, and joe you're right it's not necessarily just the guys that are transcendent and i think one of the big reasons for that is the steroid era because you had kind of that stacked ballot for so long you had a lot of guys fall off early i'm you know i'm not going to sit here and tell you that kenny lofton should be in the hall of fame I'm going to tell you, he shouldn't have fallen off the ballot on his first try. No, that's egregious. Yeah, he was one of the best center fielders of his time. That's a guy you should have to sit down and talk about every year for 10 years to decide if he's a Hall of Famer. That's someone who deserves that. I agree. And does he get in? Maybe, maybe not. Um, But it's a conversation should should be happening. But what happened when you had the steroid era, then you had – fear of there not being enough people getting in and that losing interest. And it, at the end of the day, everything's commercial. You want the Hall of Fame to stay relevant and how does the Hall of Fame stay relevant? They let guys in. So I'm, I guess I'm not heartbroken. Like when Larry Walker gets in, I'm happy that Larry Walker gets in. I'm, I'm rooting for Scott Rowland to get in. Third basemen are terribly underrepresented in the Hall of Fame, but it's well, the Hall um, of Fame is not only for transcendent players anymore. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. We shouldn't treat it like yeah. it. I agree. I'm with you. I'm pretty sure Roland is like almost a lot to get in now. Um, Helton's the guy who is also turning up. Roland looks like he's 
almost absolutely going to get into. This is a fascinating conversation that happens every January uh, about who gets in and who doesn't and who's getting screwed. And, you know, and, and we could actually get into, I remember reading a fascinating article about who gets to vote. And what if you're a baseball writer for however many years you had with the New York times, like food it's gotten editor, a little bit better uh, for a while there. The New York times, like food critic was a voter for years and years. He hadn't covered baseball in decades and he was still <laughs> getting the vote for who goes into the hall. So it, it is a little better now. It's uh, always just an interesting winter sports conversation, but Hey, that's all we have for this week. If you have the 1990 NCAA lacrosse trophy, let us know that you have it. We just want to know that it's safe. You should give us a follow on Twitter at free IL pod, like us on Facebook, make sure to give us those stars on whatever uh, system you're listening to us on, whether it's Google podcasts or iTunes or wherever that helps raise us a little higher up and we can get more Syracuse fans listening to us. But for Brett Fortnum, Joe shell, Colin Lerner, I'm Matt Pfeiffer. We'll see you next time. We'll be right back.